Lesson 15. Tolerance. You can do it if you believe you can. I will begin this lesson about tolerance by pointing out the two significant features of intolerance. The first is that intolerance is a form of ignorance which must be mastered before any form of enduring success can be attained. It makes enemies in business and in the professions. It disintegrates the organized forces of society in a thousand different forms. It is the chief cause of all wars and a barrier to the abolition of war. It dethrones reason and substitutes mob psychology in its place. The second is that intolerance is a chief disintegrating force in the organized religions of the world, where it plays havoc with the greatest power for good by breaking up that power in the small sects and denominations that spend as much effort opposing each other as they do in destroying the evils of the world. But this indictment against intolerance is general. Let us look at how it affects you, the individual. It is of course obvious that anything which impedes the progress of civilization also stands as a barrier to each individual. Stating it conversely, anything that clouds the mind of the individual and retards mental, moral and spiritual development also retards the progress of civilization. All of this is an abstract statement of a great truth, and inasmuch as abstract statements are neither interesting nor informative, let me concretely illustrate the damaging effects of intolerance. Intolerance I will start by describing an incident that I have mentioned quite freely in practically every public address I have delivered within the past five years. You will do yourself an injustice if you neglect to study this illustration in the exact words and with the exact meaning that I have intended those words to convey. As you listen, please place yourself in my position and see if you have not had a parallel experience. And if so, what lesson did it teach you? One day I was introduced to a young man of unusually fine appearance. His clear eyes, his warm handshake, the tone of his voice, and the splendid taste with which he was groomed marked him as a young man of high intellect, the typical young American college student type. As I looked him over, hurriedly studying his personality, as one would naturally do under such circumstances, I observed a knight of Columbus pin on his vest. Instantly, I released his hand as if it were a piece of eyes. This was done so quickly that it surprised both him and me. As I excused myself and started to walk away, I glanced down at the Masonic pin that I wore on my own vest, then took another look at this Knight of Columbus pin and wondered why a couple of trinkets such as these could dig such a deep chasm between men who knew nothing of each other. All the remainder of that day, I kept thinking of the incident because it bothered me. I had always taken considerable pride in the thought that I was tolerant with everyone, but here was a spontaneous outburst of intolerance that proved there was something in my subconscious mind that was creating narrow-mindedness. This discovery so shocked me that I began a systematic process of self-analysis through which I searched into the very depths of my soul for the cause of my rudeness. I asked myself over and over again why I had so abruptly released that young man's hand and turned away from him when I knew nothing about him. Of course, the answer always led me back to the Knights of Columbus Spain he wore, but that was not a real answer, and therefore it did not satisfy me. Then I began to do some research work in the field of religion. I began to study more about Catholics and Protestants until I had traced both back to their beginnings, a process that I must confess brought me more understanding of the problems of life than I had gathered from all other sources. For one thing, 
it disclosed that Catholics and Protestants differ more in form than they do in their effects. They both are founded on exactly the same cause, which is Christianity. But this was by no means all, nor was it the most important of my discoveries, for my research led of necessity in many directions and forced me into the field of biology, where I learned much that I needed to know about life in general and the human being in particular. My research also led to the study of Darwin's hypothesis of evolution, as outlined in his work, The Origin of Species, and this in turn led to a much wider analysis of the subject of psychology than any I had previously made. As I reached out for more knowledge, my mind began to unfold and broaden with such alarming rapidity that I almost found it necessary to wipe the slate of what I believed to have been my previously gathered knowledge and to learn much of what I had until then believed to be the truth. Comprehend the meaning of what I have just said. Imagine yourself suddenly discovering that most of your philosophy of life had been built of bias and prejudice, making it necessary for you to acknowledge that far from being a Finnish scholar, you were barely qualified to become an intelligent student. That was exactly the position in which I had found myself with respect to many of what I believed to be sound fundamentals of life. But of all the discoveries to which this research led, none was more important than that of the relative importance of physical and social heredity, for it was through this discovery that I came to understand the cause for my action when I turned away from a man I did not know. It was this discovery that disclosed to me how and where I had acquired my views of religion, politics, economics, and of many other equally important subjects. I both regret and rejoice to say that I found most of my views on this subject without support by even a reasonable hypothesis, much less sound facts or reason. I then recalled a conversation between the late Senator Robert L. Taylor and myself in which we are discussing the subject of politics. It was a friendly discussion as we are of the same political faith, but the Senator had asked me a question for which I never forgave him until I began this research. I see that you are a very staunch Democrat, he said, and I wonder if you know why you are. I thought about the question for a few seconds, then blotted out this reply. I am a Democrat because my father was one, of course. With a broad grin on his face, the senator then nailed me with this response. Just as I thought, now wouldn't you be in a bad fix if your father had been a horse thief? It was many years later, after I began the research work I have mentioned, that I understood the real meaning of Senator Taylor's response. Too often, we hold opinions that are based on no sounder a foundation than it being what someone else believes. To better illustrate the far-reaching effects of one of the important principles uncovered by the incident to which I have referred, and that you may learn how and where you acquired your philosophy of life in general that you may trace your prejudices and your biases to their original source and that you may discover as I discovered how largely you are the result of the training you received before you reached the age of 15 years. I will now quote from a plan that I submitted to Mr. Edward Book's committee, the American Peace Award for the Abolition of War. This plan covers not only the most important of these principles, but it also shows how the principle of organized effort may be applied to one of the most important of the world's problems. At the same time, it gives you a more comprehensive idea of how to apply this principle in the attainment of your definite chief aim. How to Abolish War The Background There are two important factors that constitute the chief controlling forces of civilization. One is physical heredity and the other is social heredity. 
The size and form of the body, the texture of the skin, the color of the eyes, and the functioning power of the vital organs are all the result of physical heredity. They are static and fixed and cannot be changed, for they are the result of a million years of evolution. But by far the most important part of what we are is a result of social heredity, which is affected through our environment and our early training. Our conception of religion, politics, economics, philosophy, and other subjects of a similar nature, including war, is entirely the result of those dominating forces of our environment and training. The Catholic is a Catholic because of their early training, and a Protestant is a Protestant for the same reason. But this is hardly stating the truth with sufficient emphasis, for it might be properly said that the Catholic is a Catholic and the Protestant is a Protestant because they cannot help it. With few exceptions, the religion of the adult is a result of their religious training during the years between 4 and 14, when their religion was forced on them by their parents or those who had control of their schooling. A prominent clergyman once indicated how well he understood the principle of social heredity when he said, Give me the control of the child until it is 12 years old, and after that time you can teach it any religion you may please. But I will have planted my own religion so deeply in its mind that no power on earth could undo my work. The outstanding and most prominent of a person's beliefs are those that we have forced upon them or that they absorbed of their own volition under highly emotionalized conditions when his or her mind was receptive. Under such conditions, the evangelist can plant the idea of religion more deeply and permanently during an hour's revival service than he could through years of training under ordinary conditions when the mind was not in an emotionalized state. The people of the U.S. have immortalized Washington and Lincoln because they were the leaders of the nation during times when the minds of the people were highly emotionalized as a result of calamities that shook the very foundation of our country and vitally affected the interests of all the people. Through the principle of social heredity, operating through the schools as in the teaching of American history and through other forms of impressive teaching, the immortality of Washington and Lincoln is planted in the minds of the young and in that way kept alive. The three great organized forces through which social heredity operates are the schools, the churches and the press. Any ideal that has the active cooperation of these three forces may during the brief period of one generation be forced upon the minds of the young so effectively that they cannot resist it. In 1914, the world awoke one morning to find itself aflame with warfare on a scale previously unheard of, and the outstanding feature of importance of that worldwide calamity was the highly organized German armies. For more than three years, these armies gained ground so rapidly that world domination by Germany seemed certain. The German military machine operated with so much efficiency that no one had ever seen before in warfare. With Kultur as her avowed ideal, Germany swept the opposing armies before her as though they were leaderless, despite the fact that the Allied forces outnumbered her on every front. The capacity for sacrifice in the German soldiers in support of Kultur was the outstanding surprise of the war, and that capacity was largely the result of the work of two men. Through the German educational system, which they controlled, the psychology that carried the world into war in 1914 was created in the definite form of culture. These men were Adalbert Falk, Prussian Minister of Education until 1879, and the German Emperor William II. Culture, as it is spelled and used here by Napoleon Hill, was in common usage at the time to refer to those characteristics that distinguished the German nation in the late 19th and early 20th century. 
a sense of national pride and a belief in Germany's natural superiority over other nations and peoples, a policy of militant expansionism, a highly systemized social order, and a belief in the subordination of the individual to the good of the state. The agency through which these men produced this result was social heredity, the imposing of an ideal on the minds of the young under highly emotionalized conditions. The teachers and professors were forced to implant a national ideal of culture in the minds of the young of Germany, beginning first in the elementary schools and extending up all through the high schools and universities, and out of this teaching in a single generation grew a capacity for sacrifice of the individual for the interest of the nation that surprised the modern world. As author Benjamin Keed so well stated it, the aim of the state of Germany was everywhere to orientate public opinion through the heads of both its spiritual and temporal departments, through the bureaucracy, through the officers of the army, through the state direction of the press, and last of all, through the state direction of the entire trade and industry of the nation, so as to bring the idealism of the whole people to a conception of and to a support of the national policy of modern Germany. Unquote. Germany controlled the press, the clergy and the schools. Therefore, is it any wonder that she grew an army of soldiers during one generation that represented to a man her ideal of culture? Is it any wonder that the German soldiers faced certain death with fearless impunity when one stops to consider that they had been taught from early childhood that this sacrifice was a rare privilege? Turn now from this brief description of the modus operandi through which Germany prepared her people for war to Japan. No Western nation, with the one exception of Germany, has so clearly manifested its understanding of the far-reaching influence of social heredity as has Japan. Within a single generation, Japan has advanced to the ranks of nations that are today seen as the powers of the civilized world. Study Japan and you will find that she forces upon the minds of her young, through exactly the same agencies employed by Germany, the ideal of subordination of individual rights for the sake of accumulation of power by the nation. In all of our controversies with China, competent observers have seen that behind the apparent causes of the controversies was Japan's stealthy attempt to control the minds of the young by controlling the schools. If Japan could control the minds of the young of China, she could dominate the gigantic nation within one generation. To study the effect of social heredity as it is being used for the development of a national ideal by still another nation, observe what has been going on in Russia since the ascendancy to power of the Soviet government, which is now patterning the minds of the young to conform with a national ideal. That ideal, when fully developed during the maturity of the present generation, will represent exactly what the Soviet government wishes it to represent. The possibility of war exists as a stern reality today solely because the principle of social heredity has not only been used as a sanctioning force in support of war, but it has actually been used as a chief agency through which the minds of men have been deliberately prepared for war. For evidence with which to support this statement, examine any national or world history and observe how tactfully and effectively war has been glorified and so described that it not only did not shock the mind of the student, but it actually established a plausible justification of war. How to Abolish War The Plan War grows out of the desire of the individual to gain advantage at the expense of his fellow men, and the smoldering embers of this desire are fanned into a flame through the grouping of these individuals who place the interests of the group above those of other groups.
war cannot be stopped suddenly. It can be eliminated only by education through the aid of the principle of subordination of individual interests to the broader interest of the human race as a whole. Man's tendencies and activities, as I have already stated, grow out of the two great forces of physical heredity and social heredity. It is through physical heredity that man inherits these early tendencies to destroy his fellow man out of self-protection. This practice is a holdover from the age when the struggle for existence was so great that only the physically strong could survive. Gradually, man began to learn that the individual could survive under more favorable circumstances by allying himself with others, and out of that discovery grew our modern society through which groups of people have formed states and these groups in turn formed nations. There is but little tendency toward warfare between the individuals of a particular group or nation, for they have learned through the principle of social heredity that they can best survive by subordinating the interest of the individual to that of the group. Now the problem is to extend this principle of grouping so that the nations of the world will subordinate their individual interest to those of the human race as a whole. This can be brought about only through the principle of social heredity by forcing upon the minds of the young of all races the fact that war is horrible and does not serve either the interest of the individual engaging in it or the group to which the individual belongs. The question then arises, how can this be done? Before I answer this question, let me again define the term social heredity and find out what its possibilities are. Social heredity is a principle through which the young of the race absorb from their environment and particularly from their earlier training by parents, teachers and religious leaders the beliefs and tendencies of the adults who dominate them. Any plan to abolish war to be successful depends on the successful coordination of effort between all the churches and schools of the world for the avowed purpose of so implanting the minds of the young with the idea of abolishing war that the very word war will strike terror in their hearts. There is no other way of abolishing war. The next question is, how can the churches and schools of the world be organized with this high ideal as an objective? The answer is that not all of them can be induced to enter into such an alliance at one time, but a sufficient number of the more influential ones can be induced and this in time will lead or force the remainder into the alliance as rapidly as public opinion begins to demand it. One other question remains, who will start the machinery of the United States government into action to call this conference? And the answer is public opinion. Universal peace between nations will grow out of a movement that will be begun and carried on at first by a comparatively small number of thinkers. Gradually, this number will grow until it will be composed of the leading educators, clergymen and publicists of the world and these in turn will so deeply and permanently establish peace as a world ideal that it will become a reality. This desirable end will be attained in a single generation under the right sort of leadership but more likely it will not be attained for many generations to come because those who have the ability to assume this leadership are too busy in their pursuit of worldly wealth to make the necessary sacrifice for the good of generations yet unborn. War can be eliminated not by appeal to reason, but by appeal to the emotional side of humanity. This appeal must be made by organizing and highly emotionalizing the people of the different nations of the world in support of the universal plan for peace, and this plan will be forced upon the minds of the oncoming generations with the same diligent care that we now force upon the minds of our young, the ideal of our respective religions. 
it is not stating the possibilities too strongly to say that the churches of the world could establish universal peace as an international ideal within one generation if they would apply just one half of the effort that they now apply in opposing one another. In brief, if the present organized forces of the world will not lend their support to establishing universal peace as an international ideal, then new organizations must be created that will do so. It staggers the imagination what all the leading churches of all religions and the leading schools and the press of the world could accomplish within a single generation in forcing the ideal of universal peace upon both the adult and the child minds of the world. The majority of the people of the world want peace, wherein lies the possibility of its attainment. Those who do not want peace are the ones who profit by war. In numbers, this group constitutes but a fragment of the power of the world and could be swept aside as though it did not exist if the multitude who do not want war be organized in their objective. In closing, it seems appropriate to apologize for the unfinished state of this essay, but it may be pardonable to suggest that the bricks and the mortar and the foundation stones and all other necessary material for the construction of the Temple of Universal Peace have been here assembled where they may be rearranged and transformed into this high ideal as a world reality. Economics and Social Heredity Let us now apply the principle of social heredity to the subject of business economy and ascertain whether or not it can be made of practical benefit in the attainment of material wealth. If I were a banker, I would obtain a list of all the births in the families within a given distance of my place of business, and every child will receive an appropriate letter congratulating it on its arrival in the world at such an opportune time, in such a favorable community, and from that time on it will receive from my bank a birthday reminder of an appropriate nature. When the child was old enough to read, it will receive from my bank an interesting storybook in which the advantages of saving will be told in a story form. If the child were a girl, she would receive as a birthday gift doll cut-out books with the name of my bank on the back of each doll. If it were a boy, he would receive baseball bats. One of the most important floors or even a whole nearby building of my bank would be set aside as a children's playroom and would be equipped with merry-go-rounds, slides, seesaws, scooters, games and sandboxes with a competent supervisor in charge. I will let that playroom become the popular habitat of the children of the community where mothers might leave their youngsters in safety while shopping or visiting. I would entertain those youngsters so royally that when they grew up and became bank depositors whose accounts are worthwhile, they would be inseparably bound to my bank. And meanwhile, I would in no way be lessening my chances of making depositors of the fathers and mothers of those children. If I were the owner of a business school, I would begin cultivating the boys and girls of my community from the time they reached the fifth grade up to high school so that by the time they were through high school and ready to choose a vocation, I would have the name of my business school well fixed in their minds. If I were a grocer or a department store owner or a druggist, I would cultivate the children thereby attracting both them and their parents to my place of business. If I were a department store owner and took whole pages of newspaper ads, as most of them do, I would run a comic strip at the bottom of each page, illustrating it with scenes from my playroom, and in this way induce the children to read my advertisements. If I were a national advertiser or the owner of a mail-order house, I would find appropriate ways and means of establishing a point of contact with the children of the country, for let me repeat, there is no better way of influencing the parent than through the child. If I were a barber, I would have a room equipped exclusively for children, 
for this would also bring me the patronage of both the children and their parents. In every city there is an opportunity for a flourishing business, for someone who will operate a restaurant and serve quality home-cooked meals and cater to families who wish to bring their children. If I were operating it, I would have the place equipped with well-stocked fishing ponds, ponies, and all sorts of animals and birds in order to induce the children to come out regularly and spend the entire day. Why speak of gold mines when opportunities such as these are in abundance? These are but a few of the ways in which the principle of social heredity might be used to advantage in business, attract the children, and then you attract their parents. If the nations can build soldiers of war to order by bending the minds of their young in the direction of war, businessmen can build customers to order through the same principle. Alliances We come now to another important feature of this lesson through which we may see from another angle how power may be accumulated by cooperative, organized efforts. In the plan for the abolition of war, you observed how coordination of effort between three of the great organized powers of the world, the schools, the churches and the press might serve to force universal peace. We learn many lessons of value from the world war, outrageous and destructive as it was, but none of greater importance than that of the effect of organized effort. The tide of war began to break in favor of the Allied armies just after all armed forces were placed under the direction of General Foch, which brought about complete coordination of effort in the Allied ranks. Never before in the history of the world had so much power been concentrated in one group of men as that which was created through the organized effort of the Allied armies. One of the most outstanding and significant facts to be found in the analysis of these armies is that they were made up of the most cosmopolitan group of soldiers ever assembled. Every race and religion was represented. If they had any differences on account of race or creed, they laid them aside and subordinated them to the cause for which they were fighting. Under the stress of war, that great mass of humanity was reduced to a common level where they fought shoulder to shoulder, side by side, without asking any questions as to one another's racial or religious beliefs. If they could lay aside intolerance long enough to fight for their lives over there, why can't we not do the same while we fight for a higher standard of ethics in business and finance and industry over here? Is it only when civilized people are fighting for their lives that they have the foresight to put aside intolerance and cooperate in the furtherance of a common end? If it were advantageous to the Allied armies to think and act as one thoroughly coordinated body, would it be less advantageous for the people of a city or a community or an industry to do so? If all the churches, schools, newspapers, clubs and civic organizations of your city ally themselves for the furtherance of a common cause, do you not see how such an alliance will create sufficient power to ensure the success of that cause? Bring the idea still nearer your own interests by imagining in your own city an alliance between all the employers and all the employees for the purpose of reducing friction and misunderstandings, thereby enabling them to render better service at a lower cost to the public and greater profit to themselves. We learn from the world war that we cannot destroy a part of the world without weakening the whole, that when one nation or group of nations is reduced to poverty and want, the rest of the world suffers as well. As we also learned, cooperation and tolerance are the very foundation of enduring success. Surely, the more thoughtful and observant among us will not fail to profit as individuals by these great lessons. I realize that you are probably studying this course for the purpose of profiting in every way possible from a purely personal point of view by the principles upon which it is founded. 
For this very reason, I have endeavored to apply these principles to as wide a range of subjects as possible. In this lesson, you have had an opportunity to consider the application of the principles of tolerance, organized effort, and social heredity in ways that should have given you much to think about. I have endeavored to show you how these principles may be applied, both in the furtherance of your own individual interest in whatever you may be involved and for the benefit of civilization as a whole. Whether your calling is that of preaching sermons, selling goods or personal services, practicing law, directing the efforts of others, or working as a day laborer, it seems not too much to hope that you will find in this lesson a stimulus to thought which may lead you to higher achievements. If you happen to be a writer of advertising, you will surely find in this lesson sufficient food for thought. If you offer personal services, it is not unreasonable to expect that this lesson will suggest ways and means of marketing those services to greater advantage. In pointing out some of the sources from which intolerance can develop, this lesson should also lead you to the study of other thought-provoking subjects which might easily mark a most profitable turning point in your life. Books and lessons in themselves are of but little value. Their real value, if any, lies not in their printed pages but in the possible action they may arouse in the reader. For example, when my proofreader had finished reading the manuscript of this lesson, she informed me that it had so impressed her and her husband that they intended to go into the advertising business and supply banks with an advertising service that will reach the parents through the children. She believes the plan is worth $10,000 a year to her. Frankly, her plan so appealed to me that I would estimate its value at a minimum of more than three times that amount, and I do not doubt that it will yield five times that amount if it were properly organized and marketed by a good salesperson. A prominent business college owner to whom I showed the manuscript has already begun to put into effect the suggestion of applying the principle of social heredity as a means of cultivating students. He also believes that a plan similar to the one he intends using could be sold to the majority of the 1,500 business schools in the United States and Canada, and that it could yield the promoter of the plan a yearly income greater than the salary of the President of the United States. An important objective of this course, and particularly of this lesson, is to educate more than it is to inform. It should awaken the power within you that awaits some appropriate stimulus to arouse you to action. In conclusion, I leave with you my personal sentiments on tolerance in the following essay which I wrote in the hour of my most trying experience when an enemy was trying to ruin my reputation and destroy the result of a lifetime of honest effort to do some good in the world. Tolerance When the dawn of intelligence shall have spread its wings over the eastern horizon of progress and ignorance and superstition shall have left their last footprints on the signs of time, it will be recorded in the book of man's crimes and mistakes that his most grievous sin was that of intolerance. The bitterest intolerance grows out of racial and religious difference of opinion as a result of early childhood training. How long, O master of human destinies, until we poor mortals will understand the folly of trying to destroy one another because of dogmas and creeds and other superficial matters over which we do not agree? Our allotted time on this earth is but a fleeting moment, at most, like a candle we are lighted, shine for a moment and flicker out. Why can we not so live during this short sojourn on earth, that when the great caravan called death approaches, we will be ready to fold our tents, and like the Arabs of the desert, silently follow the caravan out into the darkness of the unknown, without fear and trembling. I am hoping that I will find no Jews or Gentiles, Catholics or Protestants, Germans or Englishmen, Frenchmen or Russians, blacks or whites, reds or yellows, when I shall have crossed the bar to the other side.
I am hoping I will find there only human souls, brothers and sisters, all unmarked by race, creed or color, for I shall want to be done with intolerance so I may lie down and rest an alien or two, undisturbed by strife, ignorance, superstition and petty misunderstandings which mark with chaos and grief this earthly existence.